Okay. Shall we pray together? Almighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of another Lord's Day. It's um, a, a thrilling thing and full of opportunities to seek you and to love you, free from the distractions of the week and in Christ, free from, from guilt, free from the, 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 the slavery of sin to serve you as we were made to do. And we pray for the Sunday School Hour. We pray that it would play a, a fruitful role in the activities of this day. That uh, as hard as this lesson is, Lord, we pray that um, you would work your grace through Jeremiah chapter 19 in our lives that we might be more faithful and more hopeful. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you know the routine. You're going to get really sick and tired of these two questions. But I have found that if you irritate students by asking the same question over and over again, they actually retain it. So it's like Suzuki. Have you ever known, you have any children or grandchildren who play Suzuki violin or Suzuki piano? You play that minuet in G. <laughs> 3,171 times over the course of, you know, four years, and you can play it your whole life long. So, um, let's begin with the quiz, the two questions I'm going to ask every week all summer long. Actually, three questions. Who can name for me the last five kings of Judah in order, someone who hasn't done it yet for me? The last five kings in order. I actually can't remember who's done it and who hasn't, so. <laughs> Bob's going to do it. I'll give it a shot. So it's uh, Josiah. Mm -hmm. um, Joe, uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, uh, Joe Hoya <clears throat> has. You got it. Joe, uh, Joe Hoya Kim, Joe mm -hmm. Hoya uh, Chen. Yes. And then um, uh, the Z. Um, Someone help him. The Z. Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Thanks, Bob. That's great. So you can remember, you can remember this. Josiah is the one you remember from your, you know, your Bible storybooks. He was the, the, the boy king who loved the Lord and led his people back to the Lord. And then, remember our, our cheesy mnemonic device when you're trying to remember the, the three kings that all start with the letters J-E? You think of a political cartoon of the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And you go, has Kim a chin? Jehoahaz. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. And it's a fitting image because Jehoiakim was a tyrant. Right? And then you can remember Zedekiah because it's the last letter of the alphabet, the last king. But you actually can remember how long each of these five kings reigned. Well, maybe not Josiah. It's kind of a random number, 31 years. But the other four you can remember because of the symmetry. Remember? 
Who remembers how long Jehoahaz reigned? Just call it out. Three months. Three months. And how long did Jehoiakim reign? Eleven years. How long did Jehoiachin reign? Three months. How long did Zedekiah reign? Eleven years. You can remember that. Three months, eleven years. Three months, eleven years. And the reason I emphasize this is because so much of the book of Jeremiah is biographical, especially from chapter 21 through chapter 44. Uh, Virtually every chapter is telling you something about Jeremiah's life. And virtually every one of those chapters gives you a time stamp. But the time stamp is based on the reigns of these kings. So knowing the order of the kings will then help you in your personal reading of this book, especially since those stories about Jeremiah's life are a bit scrambled in the book. But then the the third question I'm going to ask you all summer long, and uh, some of you are skeptical of the usefulness of this, but I'm going to persist nonetheless. Um, It's good, I think, to have dates in your head when you're reading the Old Testament because of how frequently study Bibles reference years. And and I think the best year of all to have in mind when you're reading the book of Jeremiah is the, the the year that Jerusalem fell and the temple was burned and King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians utterly destroyed the city. Who can tell me what year that was? Just call it out. 587. If you remember one year, that's a great one to know. But if you want a second date, when was Jeremiah called? Jeremiah chapter 1 says, in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. Well, that doesn't help me. When was Does anybody know what year that was? What's the year difference? Remember, years go backwards, B.C. Is that a number you can remember? Right, 40. And then last week, I threw out the year that good King Josiah died. The Battle of Megiddo. King Josiah died in 609. And I threw that out because chapters 18, 19, and 20 that we're talking about last week, this week, and next week, we believe were written after Josiah died, but before 605, because most scholars believe that chapters 1 through 20 are the scroll or I should say many scholars believe the chapters 1 through 20 are the scroll that Jehoiakim burned in chapter 36 that we'll be reading, we'll be talking about that later this summer. So, end of quiz. As I said last week, most readers, most ordinary readers read chapters 18, 19, and 20 as a unit. They seem to go together, and you'll see why today. At at the beginning of chapter 18, and again at the beginning of chapter 19, Jeremiah visits the potter. 
That parallelism catches our eye. He takes, uh, he, 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 he goes and he visits the potter's workshop. And then in chapter 20, we have uh, the, the aftermath. It, it turns out that the religious leaders don't like what Jeremiah preaches in chapter 19. They don't like it one bit. And they beat Jeremiah, and they torture Jeremiah. And uh, we're going to talk about that some next week. And then we'll talk about Jeremiah's response to his personal sufferings two weeks from today. Gives you some sense of, of where we're heading. But today is the darkest class of the whole summer. Just so you know, this is not, this is a really difficult class that we're going to have today. We're going to talk about some very dark things in chapter 19, and we're going to face those dark things head on, because Jeremiah does. God does. So if you'll please turn to Jeremiah chapter 19. Oh, Dottie got me more handouts. So I got the same handout all summer long. If you, yes, there you go. It's going to be very helpful next week because there's, we're going to, I think, probably um, kind of work all the way through Jeremiah's life and talk about his personal suffering. So the timeline in the handout, bring it next week, it'll be handy. Okay, so we're going to read this whole chapter, and I think it might be most helpful to go verse by verse, rather than reading the whole thing in one fell swoop. Uh, Let's just take it verse by verse and and talk about them. So uh, let me start with um, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 19, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. So, Um, if you have a map at the back of your Bible of Jerusalem, why don't you turn there briefly? I don't, but I think a lot of Bibles do have maps at the back. If you have a map of Jerusalem, let's take a minute and and look at the map of Jerusalem in your Bible. Or maybe, maybe the gal next to you has a map of Jerusalem. You can peek over her shoulder. So the valley of the son of Hinnom runs along the south side of Jerusalem. Look at the bottom of your map. If north is at the top, and you'll see there either the valley of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. You might say Hinnom Brook. Take a moment there. Can you see it? That's a, that's a wadi. It's a brook that runs only during the wet season. And it runs into the Kidron Brook. You might be more familiar with the Kidron Valley, which runs along the 
the east side of Jerusalem. You can see that in your map. So the Valley of Hinnom, in Hebrew, Gehinnom, Geh being Hebrew for valley, the Valley of Hinnom was Jerusalem's garbage dump. It's where they, you know, a, a city has to put their refuse somewhere, right? They need to burn their garbage somewhere, and that was done in the Valley of, of Hinnom. Um, there was something else, though, that made the Valley of Hinnom a bad place. And we'll get to that here in a few verses. The, and uh, the Lord tells Jeremiah to visit the potter and to buy, the ESV calls it a flask. The Hebrew word is bakbuk. So pottery is a big deal in the ancient world. It's a fundamental technology in all ancient civilizations because clay is everywhere and it's soft. You can put it in any shape you want, but then if you heat it up to a certain temperature, it gets as hard as stone. Think how handy that is. And as such, ancient civilizations, ancient languages tend to have dozens of words for pottery because it was so basic to their everyday life. The word bakbuk refers to a particular shaped vessel. The bakbuk had a very narrow opening at the top and a neck. So, hence the ESV's word flask. You might also translate it decanter. And we believe the word bakbuk imitates the sound of pouring a liquid out of the flask. It goes, as you pour the liquid. So the Lord tells Jeremiah to go buy a bok book and then take the leaders with him, the elders with him. He's to exit the city from the potsherd gate. Potsherd, that's kind of an old-fashioned word. What's a potsherd? Yeah, a broken piece of pottery. So pottery's pretty hard, but paradoxically, it's also very, very fragile, right? Have you ever had a broken piece of pottery in your life? I once cut myself on a mug at work, and there's blood everywhere, and right, right? So an ancient city needs a place to put all those broken pieces of pottery. And so that's... That's, you, there would be a place in the valley of, of Hinnom where all these broken pieces of pottery were put, and you would get there through, apparently, the potsherd gate. All right, well, let's read. let's read verses 3 through 5. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord. All right, so this is God's word, not man's word, God's word. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place 
by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. In verse 5, it refers to high places. You know that the high places referred to in the Old Testament weren't always high. The high place in the valley of Hinnom was down in the valley. But that term historically came, I suppose, from the platforms that they built on which they would have worshipped false gods and sacrificed to false gods. The um, high place that Jeremiah, that God refers to there in verse 5, had a name. It was called Topheth. You'll see it spelled in verse 11. Topheth came from an old um, Semitic word for fireplace or oven or roaster. And it was there that wicked King Manasseh led God's people to imitate the Canaanites and the Ammonites by sacrificing their own children. Manasseh sacrificed his children and he led his own people to sacrifice their children. In, here in chapter 19, Jeremiah says, sons, But back in chapter 7, he says, sons and daughters, horrible, burn their children. Um, Manasseh wasn't the first, though. His uh, ancestor, King Ahaz, remember him from the book of Isaiah, he did the same thing. Both King Ahaz and King Manasseh patronized Topheth, and encouraged child sacrifice. Now, good King Josiah destroyed Topheth and outlawed child sacrifice. Hooray! But apparently they're back at it under King Jehoiakim. Now, this was a real thing. In 1921, archaeologists digging in ancient Carthage, uncovered a mass grave of babies who had been sacrificed to, um, to their god. So Carthage, that's, what the, that's a civilization that the Greeks called Phoenician, but know that the Phoenicians were ethnically, culturally, what the Bible calls Canaan. The Canaanites that we're so familiar with from the book of Judges, the Canaanites that we're so familiar with from the book of Joshua, 
they had colonies. They eventually had colonies throughout the Mediterranean world. And in this mass grave were hundreds of urns. Each of these urns were the, was the burned skeleton of a child. Boys and girls, mostly babies. Typically in the urn, there would be the burned skeleton of other sacrifices as well, lambs usually, other precious sacrifices, jewelry. And then on top of the urn would be a stone inscription. A typical inscription might read something like this. Uh, to Baal, from so-and-so, there'd be somebody's name, who has fulfilled his vow to Baal, who has heard his prayer. Or maybe it would say something like, um, uh, maybe it'd be a prayer to some god to hear his prayer. And what's really disturbing is since 1921, archaeologists have found more than 100 other mass graves from Phoenician settlements all around the Mediterranean world. So Tyre, Cyprus, Sicily, Sardinia, Tunisia, over a hundred of these. Because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Child sacrifice is so far removed from God's character. It didn't even come into his mind. It was forbidden from the beginning. Now, God did command Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. You remember from the book of Genesis. But that was to test Abraham. And he provided a substitute, right? And in the Mosaic law, he very clearly outlawed it. Let me read a sentence from John Kelvin, his commentary on the book of Jeremiah. He uses very strong language, just a sentence. He's commenting on the phrase, burn their sons in the fire. It was a horrible and prodigious madness for parents not to spare their own children, but rather to throw them into the fire. They must have been devoid of all human feeling and filled with diabolic fury. So Kelvin attributes child sacrifice it's, it's, he's, so, he's so disturbed by this verse that he thinks, well, these people either were insane or they were demon-possessed. Because how else could anyone murder their own children? Well, a contemporary of ours, Philip Riken, former PCA pastor, he was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian, church in Philadelphia, now he's the president of, of Wheaton College, has the gumption to disagree with Kelvin. Have you ever disagreed with Kelvin? And, uh, 
That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, these words have haunted me for years when it, since I read them. So this is Philip Riken in a sermon he preached long ago on Jeremiah prophesying against Topheth. Listen to this. I am not sure Kelvin is right. I do not think that we can attribute the sins of the valley of Hinnom to either insanity or demonic possession. To understand this passage is to recognize that these people thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. Very likely, these mothers and fathers loved their children. They had the natural feelings of care and protection that made them recoil at the very thought of harming their kids. They did not commit atrocities for the sake of committing atrocities. Instead, they carried out child sacrifice as an act of misguided piety and devotion to God. The sacrifice of the child was a religious act. They were killing their children out of the very best of intentions. They thought this was what God wanted them to do to atone for their sins. This is a theme that recurs throughout Jeremiah. False gods are always harsh taskmasters. God is the only God who actually loves his people. Other gods may promise to save your soul, but they will tear your heart out in the process. This is also a reminder that not everything done in God's name is pleasing to him. Not everything done out of zeal for God is acceptable to God. The people of Judah loved themselves more than they loved their kids. They were trying to buy their own salvation at the expense of their children. This is an extreme example, but it shows what happens when people try to worship God in ways that Scripture does not teach that he wants to be worshipped. That is why God takes great pains in this passage to make it clear that what the people of Judah were doing was not pleasing to him. That in fact they were doing the very opposite of what he intended them to do. In other words, Riken is arguing, and I didn't go through all the proofs to substantiate his argument, but he's arguing that these people meant well as they murdered their children. Kevin. I, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned uh, that they loved themselves more than their children, even if they had natural affection. Because in modern child sacrifice which is typically abortion, they're prioritizing self. And typically, you hear arguments where they think they're doing an act of good. Yeah. So I'm sympathetic to his reasoning there. Yes, so we naturally, we all think of abortion when we read Jeremiah 19. And with good reason. I, I think of... How, how incensed I've heard some pro-choice people be. How angry, how indignant I've heard them be. 
Some pro-choice people think that some pro-life people are wicked, immoral for their stance in much the same way that religious people will get indignant at heresy. But I don't think it's wise to limit our discussion just to abortion. Figuratively speaking, there are lots of tofeths in 21st century America, aren't there? I mean, every time that we, instead of sacrificing ourselves for God's glory, sacrifice our children or anything else that God precious, any other precious thing that God gives us, anytime we sacrifice instead that for the sake of our perceived needs or our perceived wants, that's idolatry. And it will break our heart. God is the only God who loves his people. The only one. Well, let's keep going. Let me read verse 6. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Oh boy. Hold that thought. Jeremiah is going to explain what he means by that when we get to verse 11. Let me read verse 7. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. That's a, that's a play on words that you're not going to get unless you're reading a study Bible. The word void in the ESV is translating a Hebrew word, bakak, which is very similar to the word for this vessel, which is foreshadowing. Have you figured out what Jeremiah is going to do with this flask yet? Verse 8. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. Do we have to talk about cannibalism? Oh, yes. Um, In 587, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. Have you read about sieges in history? They're horrible. Dying of thirst, dying of hunger drives people crazy. And uh, we know from the Bible that what Jeremiah says here 
did actually then happen some 20 years later during the siege of Jeremiah. In fact, God said it would happen way back in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He said, if you break the requirements of this covenant, it will bring curses down upon you. One of them would be you're going to eat your children. Two places in the Pentateuch, God warned against this. And it happened. Turn to Lamentations 2. Lamentations is the book right after Jeremiah. It's a, it's a lament for the fall of Jerusalem. Lamentations 2, verse 20. Would someone read Lamentations 2, verse 20 for me? Lamentations 2, verse 20. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt with, excuse me, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? And then we read about it again in Lamentations chapter 4. Verse 10, I'll spare you the reading. If you want to, you can read chapter 4, verse 10. But instead, let me go back to chapter 19 and pick it up in verse 10. Jeremiah 19, verse 10. Now God is speaking to Jeremiah. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. So here's the difference with chapter 18. Chapter 18 and chapter 19 are parallel in in that they both begin with the prophet going shopping at the potter's workshop. But they're not the same lesson. There's a progression of thought. The clay in chapter 18 was soft. It was wet. It was shapeable. The clay in chapter 19 is hard. And Jeremiah takes the Bach book and he smashes it in front of all the leaders. It's an object lesson. Remember the tip from last week? When you come across an object lesson in the prophets, see it with your mind's eye. Use your imagination. I should have brought in a YouTube video of someone smashing a flask. Picture it. But don't interpret it according to your own ideas. Interpret it according to the words in the Bible. God tells us why he does this to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's because of their unrepentant sin. Maybe George Handel can help us picture this. I'm a music teacher. We needed music at some point. Do you know the song in the Messiah immediately prior to the Hallelujah Chorus? 
It comes from Psalm 2. You know Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm? Here, let's read it. Keep your finger in Jeremiah 19 and turn to Psalm 2. Would someone read for me Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9? Bill, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Thank you. Yeah. So that verse gets set to music in the King James Version. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And the violins play this. Even if you don't read music, just treat it as a visual aid. Look at this leap down. Right? I mean, you've seen in the hymnal how melodies normally behave. So you got this shake up here. Right? You got so you've got the shake up here, and then you plummet down to this hard landing on these accented notes at the bottom of the violin's range. Hit it, Michael.
in Psalm 2, that's the Messiah. That's the Lord Jesus Christ defeating his enemies and ours. But in Jeremiah 19, this is God's people. These are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Well, do you remember what the prophet Hosea named his third baby? Not my people. In Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah has a vision of two baskets of figs. There are the good figs and there are the bad figs. And it turns out that the good figs are the Jews who were taken into exile and the bad figs were the ones who stayed behind. God has enemies among those who profess faith. It's a disturbing truth. And and there's a reason that God had Jeremiah buy a bock book of all the different pots because it's the one that can't be mended. It's the, 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 the ceramic is too delicate. The neck is too delicate. There's no fixing it. There's no gorilla glue on the planet that can fix a Bach book. Let's keep reading. We got halfway through verse 11. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Can you imagine if there was such a massacre? Obviously, this is hyperbole, but imagine you have so many corpses that the only place left to bury is the garbage dump. Verse 12. Thus I will do to this place, declares the Lord unto its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. So now the city's going to be like a garbage dump. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whose roofs offerings have been offered to all the host of heaven and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. Well, I'll finish the chapter. Then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck. Sometimes Jeremiah is just too good of a poet. God is stiffened. Their neck, right? The, 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 the imagery is just a little too close to home. Refusing to hear my words. So it's a dark chapter. But not only is it dark, it doesn't have even a trace of grace in it, which is unusual even for Jeremiah. Not even a hint. Why is that? I think the answer becomes clear from passages in the New Testament. Would you turn to Mark 9, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. 
Remember the question is, why does Jeremiah 19 have not even a hint of grace offered to those who might hypothetically repent? Mark 9, would someone read verse 43? Mark 9, verse 43. Do you have it, Andrew? Mark 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. What does that have to do with Jeremiah 19? Well, does your Bible have a footnote for the word hell? Mine does. Does your Bible have a footnote for the word hell? Gehenna. Gehenna. Gehenna, I told you, that's the Hebrew for Valley of Hinnom. Jesus uses the Valley of Hinnom as a symbol for hell. This place where they burn the garbage for centuries. Where they sacrifice their children. Is the best symbol our Lord can come up with to describe hell. Let's turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, the beginning of the chapter. Let me read for you verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So, did you follow that? Judas has betrayed his master, our Lord Jesus, and now he's filled with remorse, not Genuine contrition, not repentance. He doesn't come to faith. But he has regret. And he, he's, his conscience is burdened by this money that he's earned through his treachery. And so he throws the money away. And the religious leaders don't want anything to do with that money, right? Because they're hypocritically concerned about being ceremonially clean and unclean. So they take the money and they buy the potter's field 
And this fulfills what Jeremiah said. Except the quotation in verse 9 doesn't come from the book of Jeremiah. This has confused endless Bible readers over the centuries. It comes from the book of Zechariah. But don't let it be confusing to you. This incident from the life of our Lord and his disciple Judas fulfills prophecies by both Zechariah and Jeremiah. O. Palmer Robertson is one of the fathers of our denomination. I hear he spoke at General Assembly this year as part of the 50th anniversary observances. And he is convinced that Matthew 27 is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 19. The thing that is emphasized in Matthew 27 that has no parallel in the book of Zechariah is its emphasis on blood, innocent blood. Look at verse 4. Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Where does that phrase come from? Look at verse 6. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Look at verse 8. That field has been called the field of blood to this day. Where does that come from if it's not Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 4? Because they have filled this place with what? Innocent blood. On Good Friday... Judas and the religious leaders shed the only blood that has ever been truly innocent, didn't they? And they bought the potter's field, the place where the potters tossed their shards of broken pottery. From the beginning, church history has identified the field that the religious leaders bought with that money as being in the Valley of Hinnom. It's there to this day if you ever visit Jerusalem. The very place that Jesus used as a symbol for help. So the plucking up, the breaking down, the destruction that are coming, that God said was coming, that Jeremiah was coming, it's for those who reject the Lord. It's for those who reject Christ. Just as Judas rejected Christ. The reason there's no hint of grace in Jeremiah chapter 19 is because it's uh, a nascent teaching of the doctrine of hell. You can't repair a Bach book. There is a point of no return. When you die, it's too late to repent. I know that's hard. It's hard to think about hell, but we have to think about hell. We have to think about hell 
as a warning, a warning for non-Christians and a warning for people who claim Christ who actually haven't put their trust in Christ. Did you know that Pilgrim's Progress references Topheth? Right at the very beginning. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, what shall I do to be saved? I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him who asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? And he answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, Why not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. What's lower than the grave? And I shall fall into Topheth. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, Why standest thou still? Because I know not whither to go. Then the Evangelist gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. And you know what happens? He runs. Eternal life! Eternal life! He runs to the cross where he loses his burden and he stays on the narrow way until he comes to the celestial city. We need the prophets for their warning, but we also need teaching. Believe it or not, we need teaching about hell because it helps us to see how just God is. And that's a beautiful thing. Do you want to live in a world where evil goes unpunished? And we need this warning because it helps us to understand the cross. Why do you and I not need to sacrifice our children? We're surrounded by people who long for certain things so intensely that they're, they're willing to give up the things that are most important to them to, to placate their God, to manipulate their God, to coerce their God into giving them what they think they need, what they think they want. Why don't we have to do that? Why did Abraham not have to sacrifice his son? It's because Jesus is the Bach book. Jesus was shattered to pieces on our behalf. He paid the price for the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. Would you please turn to chapter 31? My favorite chapter in Jeremiah. I told you I can't wait till we read it together later this summer, and so I'm not going to wait. 
Would you turn to chapter 31, verse 38, the end of the chapter, the end of Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this, friends. Listen. Jeremiah 31, verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. Are you listening? The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes. You know what valley this is. And all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate, toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. In the new Jerusalem, the valley of Hinnom is going to be clean. There is a hell, but there is no hell in heaven because of what Jesus did. Would you take your hymnal and turn to number 598? 598, this old, old Welsh hymn. Let me read the last stanza for you as you stand. Hymn 598 uses the wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness as a type for the Christian life. And in verse 3, we come to our death. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee. Be thankful you are at a church with the Trinity hymnal. Most Christians today sing from hymnals that water down this verse. There's no death of death and hell's destruction in most hymnals, but this is uh, a literal translation from the Welsh. Let's sing 598.
Let's pray. Oh Lord, our hearts are full of gratitude for Jesus Christ and all he did to free us from the consequences of our sins. We pray that we would live our lives accordingly with, with hope and joy and peace, that like evangelists, we would be eager to point others to the way of the cross and the celestial city. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.